Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms. But starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear episode one on April 11th and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times. From the LA Times studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Jen Yamato. And I'm Frank Shong. This week on the 12th episode of our podcast, we're joined by director John M. Chu. He's going to talk to us about what life was like before his 2018 blockbuster, Crazy Rich Asians. I was too scared to sort of tackle my own idea of identity because I didn't know the answers. We'll also talk about John's real-life Crazy Rich Asians connection, his parents' views on raising Asian-American kids, and what he's working on next. All right, let's do it. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus in the TV app on all iOS devices and TV app-supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. John M. Chu is the filmmaker behind the movies Crazy Rich Asians, Step Up to the Streets, and G.I. Joe Retaliation, among many others. He is a Silicon Valley native and a graduate of USC, and his next film, In the Heights, is a big-screen studio musical, very excited about it, about characters who live in the predominantly Latinx neighborhood of Washington Heights, New York City. And it's adapted, of course, from the Broadway play of the same name, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Chiara Alegria Hudes. So, John, thank you so much for joining us remotely. Thank you. I'm excited to hear your voice. I'm sorry <laughs> that you're not here with us in beautiful El Segundo, California. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, in a, a I'm in a little edit room uh, surrounded by all the stress of finishing a movie. So, this would be <laughs> Wait, are you calling from your actual edit room from I'm in, in the Heights? Yeah, I'm in the actual edit room that on the couch that <laughs> oh I gosh. basically sleep on in front of the big board where I put up all the scenes and reshuffle and reshuffle until we find the right movie. I feel like home. But also it probably smells in here. <laughs> well, we want to take you back, just a, a little rewind, to yes. a little movie you did called Crazy Rich Asians. Yes. It was a huge, huge critical, commercial, and historic success for you mm -hmm. and the author Kevin Kwan, mm -hmm. who wrote the original novels that it's based on. And uh, you also brought in this great cast of Asian American and Asian British and Asian Australian, Asian diaspora Actors like Constance Wu, Henry Golden, who you discovered yeah. through this. 
Crazy. Basically. Crazy. I think that's like a pretty solid gift to the world <laughs> that you just gave. And even like icons, legends like Michelle Yao, who is fantastic. So we want to ask, first of all, looking back on that experience, what were the biggest ways that the whole Crazy Rich Asians of it all, everything uh, affected you both personally and professionally? It is very hard to comprehend, to be honest. I think it's the first time now that I've finished In the Heights or almost done with In the Heights that I can actually process. When people come up to me on the streets in New York City, not where I'm from, and come up to me and talk to me about Crazy Rich Asians, that like still shocks me to this day. It feels like both so long ago, but at the same time, it feels like yesterday. <laughs> And to see our actors, who I remember being on set, showing Aquafina her scenes on the rooftop of a hotel room and her being in tears because she'd never seen herself in a movie before. To think that she won a Golden Globe for Best Actress. She's dominating the game right now. Henry Golding, who'd never been in a movie before. Constance and Gemma. And, I mean, you can go on and on for everyone in our list of cast. It's like, that to me... I'm honestly still processing it. I was thinking about this the other day, like my whole idea who who I am as a filmmaker and as an artist and what I can be has completely shifted because of that movie. Like in what ways? You know, I, I got into this business off a short that I did at USC. So yeah. I, I, I basically won the lottery. Like I got in, Steven Spielberg saw it. I got, got connected to all these movies to direct. I didn't make my movie till five years later, but it was studio movies. I didn't have to do music videos or commercials or do other jobs. And so, well, that's great. I also didn't know who I was as a filmmaker. And I knew the things I wanted to make and we had fun. And of course, things like Step Up and Justin Bieber's Never Say Never. And those were all amazing experiences for me. And I loved making them, but I also was growing up at the same time. And I didn't have the sort of playground place to sort of, figure myself out or who, what kind of stories I, I wanted to tell at that level. I just had to sort of stay swimming. And I guess it wasn't until right before sort of, I chose Crazy Rich Asians in the Heights at the same year, 2016, right after um, oh, really? Gem and the Holograms and right after Now You See Me Too. And it felt like I was growing up, 36, 37 years old at the time. I was looking at my life and thinking, what, how am I contributing to this medium that I love? I need to find stuff that tells people who I am and which means I need to pick stories that are scary to me and that mean something more than just a movie. And so I looked at stuff and found Crazy Rich Asians, which is a very personal idea of an Asian American going to Asia for the first time and an immigrant story of a community of immigrants and their kids in the Heights. Taking that, those steps and saying, this, these two are for me and now cut to four years later, looking at them, and seeing the impact of one of them and hopefully the impact of the other is, it just showed me that I have power to make things that I expect to be in the movie world. And that's a different way to approach a business that you are just trying to survive in. You did all of these other movies, which I have watched. I'm a fan of you two ways. I <laughs> love you. Crazy Rich Asians and also watch like any single type of dance battling movie. Oh, Frank, <laughs> nice. <love dance. laughs> yeah, so it's like my genre. So, nice. But yeah, I saw Step Up to the Streets, Step Up 3D. And, and, and so I was just wondering, like, was there a reason you didn't tell Asian American stories before, you know, whether that be structural yeah. or personal or whatever? 
I think back at like college and high school and I told stories that were fun to me. I mean, I, I fell in love with movies of the movies that I grew up with. So you only, that, that's how I see a movie. And so What are some think, of those movies? Well, I mean, things like Back to the Future, like Airplane, like <laughs> yeah. Batman, like Indiana Jones. Like to me, those are the movies that I loved going to and would play with my toys and create my own stories with. Like it took me to another place. And so when you don't see... Asian characters being the heroes or romantic leads or any of those things, I think you don't think that's what a movie is in a weird way. And so even in school, I was too scared to sort of tackle my own idea of identity because I didn't know the answers. Like I did one movie at school at USC called Guaylo. It's a silly little musical about an Asian American kid going to his high school and, and sort of dealing with that. But I was so uncomfortable with what I was trying to say with it. I'd never showed anybody after. Like we did a screening and the whole school watched oh, it. Wow. But after that, I didn't submit it to festivals. I didn't do anything. Nobody understood why. And then looking back, I feel very embarrassed that I didn't. And I think it was partly because I, I always felt like I would be judged uh, for that, mm -hmm. or I'd be put in a category of, oh, he just does like Asian movies or, oh, he's the Asian guy. Of course he does an Asian movie. Like there are expectations that you're constantly afraid to step on or get trapped in. And when you don't know that there are others like you out there who feel the same thing, it's very, it sort of stifle everything, all, that whole part of my brain. Um, right. It was scary. I, it's scary yeah. to like rip open your your own chest and expose like, yeah. what's inside. And if you've because, never like seen yourself as the subject of a story, it's like it almost takes a work of imagination to like, you know, see that who you are can be yeah. the subject of a story. I mean, I basically yeah. grew up in that. I think that's part of both my power and my weakness is like I grew up in an environment in the Silicon Valley in the 80s and the 90s. And so I know that perspective because I grew up in the perspective of like, oh, are Asians the other? When you're surrounded by it, you are indoctrinated it. And so you know what they're thinking. And I grew up in a Chinese restaurant as well. So the fears of what people think of you are, are completely intertwined in your brain and in your heart. I think the internet changed so much because when I watched YouTube videos and, and, and for instance, in, in dance, like I saw how fast the perspective of what Asians are as dancers uh, in the dance world. When I started, Asians weren't known as like amazing hip hop dancers. But when I went to mm -hmm. those tournaments and these, these, these conferences where there's 6,000 Asian American dancers and they're amazing hip hop dancers. And that's where like Kaba Modern was. That's where Jab Jabberwocky was. There were all these amazing dancers and the world didn't know about it. And in the span of like four or five years, everybody knew about it. And suddenly it's like, oh, Asians can dance. When did you start going to these dance Event, basically. <laughs> I went, let's see, my, my cousin was going to San Diego State. And so she'd be like, you have to come see this because you like dance and this is incredible. And so I, I want to say it was like 2006, 2005. Um, was this the collaboration or, or which dance competition was this? There's um, a there collaboration were, star. Some right? was collaboration. Yeah, there was collaboration, but there was also other ones. But that's I where I saw Jabberwockies for the first time. And that's when I did Step Up too. I was like, when I was creating Step Two, I was like, oh, we got to have these crews because I've seen the, these crews um, and, and Jabberwock is like the all-star. Like they weren't 
there was no ABDC at the time. There was no, nobody knew them. They had never been filmed before. So we got them very, very early. But witnessing the shift of people seeing Asians as dancers and seeing, oh, they can be the best. Oh, when you see these Korean dancers in those Uniqlo ads or in Missy Elliott videos, like it changed. And I, I could see how fast that, oh, it just takes an example. I love that you have always seemed to love dance and music and sort of gravitated towards those areas in your work. Obviously, I remember I went to the set of your web series, your superhero <laughs> dance yes. series, the LXD, when <laughs> yes. you guys were shooting like a showdown scene in this that was old nuts. West town. That's true. <laughs> we had, they were um, kicking us out in 15 I, minutes. So we had to shoot like our whole last episode in 15 minutes. It was insane. <laughs> and I think you but were also, there. <laughs> I was I was there. It was pretty great. And you really between that project and the Step Up movies and the Adam Chu dance crew, which yes. by the way I'm going to make you explain to those people <laughs> who were not around in the internet back then. Yes. But you really seemed to to be able to lean into these interests of yours but at the same time create this like company of talent. Like Harry Shum Jr. got so mm -hmm. many great spotlights through your works with him and so many other dancers got on my radar. Mad but Chad, Casper Smar oh. was in it, all that stuff. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy times. How did that happen? Like what, what kind of role did that project have? First of all, how do you describe it now <laughs> looking back? I just, I mean, we were early in YouTube. It was like 2007, 2008, maybe. I don't know, maybe 2008. 2009, somewhere around there. And uh, basically, we had done Step Up 2, and Miley Cyrus had watched the movie. And so she called our 14-year-old star of that movie, Adam Savani, who played Moose in the movie, and left a message. He didn't answer. So he, she left a message and said, hey, Moose. I loved you in that movie. Congrats. And didn't leave a number. And so she's like 15 or 16, and he's 14. He calls me. He's like, oh my gosh, Miley Cyrus just called me. Can you get me her number? I'm like, a, I don't know how to get her. Now. What do you want me to do? Like call her agent? He's like, yeah, call her agent. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. But she was already had a YouTube channel and we had already were thinking like, hey, we should do some videos on this YouTube thing. And so I was like, if she has this, her best friend, Mandy, who's a dancer, like let's challenge them to a dance battle and just <laughs> challenge her and maybe she'll answer because she knows who you are. So we got our crew together and made this crazy video challenging her to a dance battle and two days later, she answered. And she had the biggest YouTube channel at the time. Uh, this is at the height of her sort of power. And when she answered us, uh, she oh my got all her celebrity friends, made it like a music video, and got included Channing Tatum and Jenna Dewan in their video, which is kind of a slap <laughs> in the face to us. Yeah, so that, then was we were, that was a real power move. <laughs> oh, man, dance it, battling is real, though. We should we should resolve more things with dance yeah, battling. I didn't this know was that. Like, I thought that was... <laughs> this was West Side Story digital. Like, this was the real <laughs> shit. And people online, like, really got into it. People who hated Miley could be on our side and then people who love Miley could be on her side. And so we made another video after and we pulled out our Rolodex and we got like Adam Sandler, Lindsay Lohan. We got Chris Brown before the incidents, um, Diana Ross, um, Amanda <laughs> Bynes before her oh incidents. <laughs> we got a lot of people. And then we got a huge amount of hits. We got millions and millions of hits. And at that time it was big. And so then she answered again with like helicopters and Ryan Secret and all these people. Well, that's the <laughs> thing about this whole thing, which I remember it being just so huge, but it's kind of an example of growing an internet age community 
in a way yeah. that is very, very, like, demonstrably has power. I mean, you've also worked with Justin Bieber twice. Yes. Uh, and saw how, like, how strong his fandom is. So it's kind of cool to see the Asian American community rally around Crazy Rich Asians when that came out. Not that they're at all, at all related to one another. <laughs> yes, but, yes. You know, all these. All I mean, these they are examples. though a little bit though. Like I that's guess. that's what I wanted to ask about is is you know could the Asian American dance crews in Southern California is such a thing? You know, I yeah. went to UCLA, watched them, and it's so cool to kind of hear you talk about how. You did, Frank. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, and Jabberwockies like weren't they on like America's Next Best Dance Crew or something mm. like that? Yeah, but that was and, after uh, like that was when like the world got to know them. But before Jean-Chu, that, like, Jonchu knew them first. We, <laughs> they were in ACDC, <laughs> so, yeah, our exactly. Adam Chu dance crew, before they were on. Actually, uh, during, while they were on there. They were in uh, Step Up 2 before they were ever uh, on yes. that show. So. Oh, so you put you put the Jabberwockies on the map then. You, you, I don't like, know if I put it. I mean, of I think they put themselves on the I mean, map. with the masks. <laughs> yeah, but, like, <laughs> but we filmed them for the first time, for sure. I had already made my first studio movie. And yet I still felt like when I would watch YouTube, I was like, this is like energy. And I reminded myself that I I didn't have to ask permission for anything. Like I could, I have a camera, I know how to edit. And I shot and edited all the, our, our YouTube battle videos. I didn't have to answer to anybody. And that's an amazing confidence builder and powerful thing to know that you have at your fingertips and you can have millions of people watching it tomorrow. Not next week when a marketing <laughs> company goes, at, not with a press release, like just releasing it. It was a big lesson to me during that time, knowing that I have no excuses not to make stuff at any moment that I want to make stuff. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote a story about those Asian YouTubers in in uh, in, in college <laughs> for the mm. Daily Bruin. Oh, nice. Yeah, so yeah. like, I, I, that was a time when when you wanted to see Asians moving in video, <laughs> you want you had to go on YouTube. Yeah, um, I think it was so the first time was, that I really realized, oh, there were Asian Americans out there who talk like me, who mm-hmm. are going through the same things like me, who love Chinese food and make it feel like it's home, like me, but also love a burger at In and Out. And yeah. uh, and yeah. loved to dance and loved all these other things. How did you get so interested in dance? And what were your experiences of it growing up in the Silicon Valley? Um, yeah, I grew up in like Los Altos, in the in Palo which is like five minutes from Palo Alto, right in the heart of the Silicon Valley. I wanted to be an animator when I was little, little, like third, fourth grade. I discovered the camera in like fifth grade, and when I started editing with this little sharper image mixer, I realized that's what I want to do. And so, growing up in the Silicon Valley is could not have asked for a better experience. One, watching my parents own this restaurant and still there 50 years later, Chef Chu's, they were ambassadors to a culture. I was, I'm the youngest of five. So by the time I came around, we were sort of set in that neighborhood. Whereas like my older brother, like they were literally pioneering so much in that, in that area, introducing Chinese food to uh, people who didn't necessarily know. So you guys were the only one around. Did you ever have to work there or anything? So again, by the time I came around, we weren't the only ones around, but that wave had been happening and my parents never let me work there. They never let any of the kids work there. They wanted us to do everything they couldn't do. Of course, their ultimate dream was us for all to have a restaurant somewhere. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) my mom would say they don't want us to get used to like cash. They want us to like 
try things. So I took drums, saxophone, violin, guitar, piano. I took tap classes. Uh, I was in ballroom dance classes. We go to see shows every weekend, whether it's musical season, opera season, or ballet season in the city. They very much wanted us to feel that we didn't feel out of place, both good and bad. Like they didn't, by the time I came around, they didn't really speak Chinese. I mean, they spoke Chinese to each other and around us, but even my grandparents like could communicate enough that I didn't have to. Mm. So, uh, which is probably the biggest regret. And people would come into the restaurant and be like, oh, Chef Chu's son is into filmmaking. Well, we are tech companies and, you know, people from Radius, from Adobe. And so they'd be like, oh, we have this technology. Let us bring you like these beta computers, beta software. And so I'd get free computers and software every couple months wow. that I have to figure out. So After Effects, Photoshop, I had all really early Media 100, Radius Video Vision, like these video cards, digitizing video cards in 1996, which people my age, 16, 17 year old, could not afford, but I got them. I was doing like dissolves and star wipes before <laughs> anyone my age really could afford that stuff. And so I started doing like weddings and, and bar mitzvahs and stuff. And what I was making, even if it was like a silly wedding video, I would... I would copy from movies to try to get a sense of what they were doing, learning how to mix sound and music and sound effects with my stereo and my VCRs. I learned all that very, very early and how meticulous you had to be in order to execute what you needed to get. There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com enough. That's netsuite.com enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. Do you go to the bathroom? Then this ad is for you. It's hard to believe that when we use the toilet in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. That's crazy. Imagine jumping in the shower and not turning on the water, just wiping your body with dry paper. For years, bidets have been available but hideously expensive, costing thousands of dollars. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean behinds to everyone. Hello Tushy uses a precise stream of fresh water to leave you feeling clean. And it's only $79. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't need to wipe it all. Even the best two-ply just can't compete when it comes to a hands-free bathroom experience. Ditch paper products and uncomfortable chafing when you switch to the soothing, cleansing stream of water from a Hello Tushy bidet attachment. And every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. 
Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and end every flush with a smile. Go to hellotushy.com slash enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer just for our listeners. So go to hellotushy.com slash enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com slash enough. Did you know that socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters? Well, Bombas is on a mission to change that. They created the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. And for every pair of socks purchased, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. And they've donated over 20 million pairs. Designed with special comfort innovations, colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas are perfect for the whole family. Get your hands on a pair of Bombas socks and your feet will thank you. They're made from super soft, natural cotton, and every pair is designed with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's supportive but not too thick. My new favorites are their new merino wool socks, designed to be breathable, dry, and never itchy, with just the right amount of thickness. I wear my merino wool socks every day, whether I'm in the office or working from home, and they always keep my feet feeling fresh and comfortable. Now you can save 20% on your first purchase when you shop at bombas.com slash Asian Enough. That's bombas.com slash Asian Enough to save 20%. bombas.com slash Asian Enough. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus for your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today. So your parents were from originally from Taiwan and China, right? Yeah. Yeah. What brought them here? They came separately. They met in San Mateo in the Bay Area. So my mom came with her family of six when she was like 19 years old. She was the oldest. And so everyone lives, you know, within a couple miles of each other. And then my dad came over. His father opened a restaurant in the Bay Area. They met through like friends of friends. And he, they, they started the restaurant together at first of this little, in the mini mall, basically on this corner. And they had one little stall in it. And then they eventually got the place next door and the place next door. And then now they have the whole block. So, uh, That's amazing. They so they definitely grew up a, with the Silicon Valley. I love a Bay Area Asian American story. Yeah. Chinese restaurant yeah. glow up. Um. <laughs> in kindergarten, there, it was like Chinese New Year and... You know, I would, I would, I went through that whole dumplings experience where you, my dumplings would smell in my bag, so I would dump it before going to school, even Aww. at that young age. And I remember, 
my parents saying, oh, for Chinese New Year, we're going to come to the school and we're going to present what Chinese New Year is. And I was like devastated. I was like, no, this is going to be the worst. And they came and they brought like, they did a whole lion dance, them and a couple of the chefs. And they brought Your their little- Your parents are lion cup. dancing at the school? Yes. <laughs> By the way, they're not- these kind of dancers, but they brought the thing and like <laughs> pranced around in it. And they gave everyone red envelopes with gold chocolates inside and talked about Chinese New Year. And after that, wow. my friends were like, your parents are so cool. We want to go to your restaurant. And so I suddenly became cool because of it. And I'll never forget what that felt like of like suddenly, oh, going to the Chinese restaurant after a soccer game or basketball game was like, cool. Everyone wanted to get in my mom's minivan when we went on a field trip because she had beef sticks or pot stickers or whatever it was she had during that time. No, it's so, it's so funny. Like I had an exact same experience where my well-meaning, you know, school in Michigan, they wanted me, us to come in and do something for Lunar New Year. And <laughs> my parents came in and made fried rice and, and the fried rice was a hit. You know, and every and I became like the the kid whose parents like made awesome fried rice. You know, and and those experiences are so so formative. I feel. <laughs> and by the way, those dumplings that we dumplings. used to dump are now like eight dollars in some hipster cafe down the street here. <laughs> like it's uh, it's totally shifted, which is cool. So your parents wanted you to be a part of mainstream culture, but they yeah. also really wanted you to know Chinese culture and. To the point of dragon dancing at your school. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Do you feel like they kept you away from Chinese culture ever or, you know, emphasized American culture? They um, they did both. I think my dad was very much us being into Chinese culture and my mom was very much like the opposite. Like if they're going to fit in here, they can't have accents. They've got to know American culture. They've got to dress like the kids and they've got to know music and they've got to know dance and they've got to know classic things. My mom really believed we were the Kennedys. Like Jackie O is like, her person. So she would dress us the same. She That's why she put us in like etiquette classes. She wanted us to show that Chinese family could be classy and could hang at a country club if we wanted to. Like manners was a big thing in the household. Being kind, but the family being wasn't helpful, uh, getting good grades, of course. That was all very big to my mom. And then, for instance, if we went to go to get dim sum, I would want a Sprite and my dad would be like, hell no, our kids are not drinking Sprite at Yumcha. Like, no way. And my mom would then fight him, be like, no, they should be able to drink whatever they want. Uh, of course, we had like Chinese food all the time at the house. Like my grandma and all my mom's sisters, there's like four of them in the neighborhood. They would all come over with their kids and they would cook dinner. So every night we'd have like 30 people at the house, Chinese food. We'd all be doing homework in different rooms. We had a dinner bell. And we'd all get around the table with the Lazy Susan and we'd all eat together every night. Oh, we wow. could never miss it. And so it was infused in us, the Chinese culture. But at the same time, my mom was very conscious because I think when she came to the United States, she didn't speak any English. So for six months, she basically didn't talk. And um, so she always told us that she really wanted us to never feel like that. Well, it's interesting that she, you know, wanted to do this ballroom dancing and opera and stuff like that. Was that something that her family had done? I think it was literally from her own experiences of feeling out of place and really not wanting that for us. That's so cool that your mom wanted to give that to you. Yeah, it's, it was complicated. <laughs> and I think that's why with Crazy Rich Asians, it was such a strange thing because just doing a movie about Asian people 
and Asian American going there would bring up a lot of insecurities of our family and what it meant to be Asian because every we all have a point of view. And when I first told her, they were both excited, but also sort of like, well, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? Like, what does that, what does it mean? What do you mean crazy rich Asian? That sounds crazy, you know? And when I was pitching, I was listening to a lot of music to try to figure out like, what is this world we're going into and how, like, I want it to feel like a classic Hollywood movie, but what kind of like sounds and things are, um, from Asia would bring that? And we found all these old school songs from like the 60s and that we use in the movie now, actually. And, and I, I remember bringing the playlist back home and playing some songs for her and her eyes lit up and she was like moving to it. She's like, oh my gosh, me and your father used to dance the jitterbug to this Aww. all the time. And she knew all the words. She looked like a teenager again. I would never, ever seen her like that. And still to this day, haven't really seen her like that other than playing that in that car that day. And I knew that there was something very special if we could bring this romantic sense of Asian identity to the big screen and mix it with what it feels like for someone like me, a kid, to to discover that for the first time and see this elegance and see, oh, it's it's not this idea of like an ancient culture that 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 doesn't appreciate these these other things in art and beauty and fashion, like it's all there. And when you dig, it's just not out front. Let's talk about the crazy rich Asians effect from like this wider standpoint. From the start, you knew that this story wasn't going to be representative of all stories. You know, that's something I think that you and Kevin Kwan were going in very clear-eyed about. And when the movie hit, also, I think these some of the criticisms of the movie also apply just to the story, but also apply to the idea of narrative scarcity, to borrow from Viet Thanh Nguyen, when this is the only movie on a big screen uh, like it in decades, it kind of assumes more responsibility, more on its shoulders. And I wonder what you say now about the lessons that you learned from from that and coming out. Like, what were your reactions to some of the criticisms over either casting or the sort of elite world that this story is set in? And what's been easier this time going into looking at the uh, sequels, the Crazy Rich Asians 2 and 3? Well, I do feel like my experience in the movie making world, especially in the studio and like in my studio movies, I've had to work with brands that have fan bases already. All those things trained me emotionally for what I would be up against in making Crazy Rich Asians, no doubt. Like, I'm not sure a lot of people could survive the... um, the personal attacks or the uh, insecurity of of what you're doing could ruin this thing for all your people, like or your family would could be ashamed of you of what you're doing. Like I think I was built for that, having gone through movies that don't get high Rotten Tomato scores. You build a thick skin and you realign your reasons for making your particular movie. Crazy Rich Asians couldn't be everyone's story, but people wanted it to be that anyway, right? And and a lot of the yeah. sort of criticism came from, you know, like from non-East Asians who, who were like, well, what does this do for like non-East Asians? And I guess, I, I don't know, when, when my non-East Asian friends asked me that, I didn't know what to say. You know, what, what, yeah. what do you say? Yeah, this couldn't be a movie for everything. There is an existing book, 
with existing things in it. I guess if I made it out of my own head and like it just came out of the sky, like, okay, fair. But like there are characters that exist. There are fans that exist of these characters. And my biggest contribution was seeing this Rachel story, like knowing that it's not about 10 different characters. It's about one character, Uh, Rachel Chu, an Asian American going to Asia for the first time and figuring out her self-worth. That's it. It's not a love story. There are love things in it, but the movie can end when she walks away from that Mahjong game. We should be totally emotionally satisfied with that. And I knew that from the very beginning, every time the studio would be like, but we don't know Nick's side. What is Nick going through? What is blah, blah, blah going through? I'm like, it doesn't matter. This is one person's story. That's not necessarily what the book was either, but I, but that's the only personal place that I could come from. I knew her story. I mean, literally I'm in the book. Uh, our family is like mentioned because Kevin Kwan, I didn't discover this till later, getting the job is like friends with my cousin, Vivian Chu, who would tell stories of the Chus in Cupertino, which is where my family is from. And in the book, they talk about one of the Chu family members making movies in Hollywood. So And it's you. (laughs) And it's me, which is crazy. All these weird things happen in that movie that I didn't, that, you know, when those things happen, you know, you're supposed to make the movie. But did I learn a lot from when, when people say those criticisms and say, hey, why don't you pay attention to this or that? 100%. It hurts my heart. And I can only become a better filmmaker from that or better storyteller or better person to understand all the different complicated emotions of what does representation mean? You know, movies are a two hour experience, so you're limited. And so definitely those lessons get carried on to something like In the Heights when you think about, all right, who of all these Latin American countries have we not represented yet? And how are we representing that? Or do we need to? Or like, what is this all about actually? That's one thing that I've really enjoyed watching uh, from the outside is you seemingly using your Crazy Rich Asians clout now to, for example, announce that you're developing a movie based on the Thai cave diver story Mm -hmm. that would give voice to the actual people, the actual Thai voices involved in that. And then in the Heights, It's really cool to see you collaborating with Lin-Manuel on this. I know that it's going to be huge in terms of representation, hopefully on the scale that Crazy Rich Asians was, but for the Latinx community as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're wrapping up that experience now. How has the In the Heights process shown Mm -hmm. or or allowed you to use your voice and, and use your power to not only be a force for for representation, but like intersectional representation. Yeah. One, I it's like a dream to work with the greatest songwriter of our generation, maybe of all time, Lin-Manuel Miranda's. And not only that, but watching how he's a leader in his community. I mean, you want to talk about well-versed in the policies and politics of the Latinx community. Like he and Kiara are full on. They do the thing that I can't. Like, I can't talk about all the politics of Asian American things because I just don't know all those things. I'm just not that person. Um, I like to make movies. But they know all those things. And it's and it's so amazing to watch how they interact. They still live in the community that Lynn grew up in. And this story, the songs are written about this neighborhood, in these neighborhoods, about the bodega owner on the corner. To see him show up at an extras casting call 
you know, these extra casting, everybody jumps into a room, they just take Polaroids and they leave. And then I look at the Polaroids and I decide like, what's the look that we want? He shows up at that thing. He texts me on a Sunday because it happened like Sunday at three o'clock. Texts me, where is that? Oh, it's like, I think at this address, I don't even know. He goes, he shows up and it's, he talks to his people and his people being his neighbors, telling him how much this means to him that they're here and that they've shown up and that apologize for taking their parking when we shoot. And it just reminds me like, I've got to be a better leader in that. You have to be that person to take that extra time. If you want to talk about representing people, it's not just about making a movie. And I learned a lot in Crazy Rich Asians of like, I can't just go hide once I make this movie. I have to actually take mm -hmm. action. And I got to bring stuff to, to Lynn too, like to watch him do that and then tell him like, these are the things that at once Crazy Rich Asians came out, I learned who we're representing. You have to be very specific about what sauces are on the table for that meal. Like it better be the way their abuela put it on that table. Uh, we better be specific about uh, hair and, 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 and patterns on their clothes or the voice on the radio. It better be from that region. It better not be a Spanish voice because that's different than what's happening here. Or, uh, we had a very open on set. So actors could say, this is not the way it would be. Move the camera, reset the lights. Like that's, these are the things that we had to stop and do because that's the type of movie, this is the type of experience we're making. It's that time in our podcast when we ask our guests to share a bad Asian confession. And that's any story or life experience or situation that's made you feel like you're a bad Asian. So what's yours? So what's you mine? Uh, well, uh, well, uh, probably the worst Asian thing I did was, you know, my mom made me take violin as a kid and piano and uh, I w didn't want to rehearse. So, but she would force us to practice every day for like 30 minutes. And she, eventually she was like, I don't care what you do, you have to sit at the piano. And so I would sit at the piano and I would bang the keys as loud as I could and make up songs about how much I hated piano. Um, and <laughs> I would torture Former my, I was piano the, player myself, <laughs> involuntary was, piano yes. player. <laughs> so I would think probably Asian parents would think I'm a terrible, terrible human being. And my brothers probably, sisters think I'm a terrible human being for torturing them through that. Well, thank you, John, so much for joining us. It's been really great to have you and to talk about all these things and to to unpack unpack some of what we covered today. There's so much, there's always so much to talk about. There's so um, much. Like really I really, cool. I actually yeah. really wanted to talk about not understanding what representation really meant I mean, I understood intellectually. And then when I think it was William Yu who put up that hashtag starring John Cho, literally the image, just the image of John Cho and John Cho's just in the right spot of being a movie star and being a leading man. And he put him in all those posters. And just that image broke my brain. I remember not being able to get it out. I'd been in the movie biz for so long. And I remember looking at that and being like, I can see that. That is not just a, mo a movie that should be done. That is a marketable movie. And that is a movie that can be done. And yet it's not. And it just like literally collapsed my brain of what should be possible. I've been like a slave to the studio business and a student of what can be sold and what can capture like pop culture. So it's just as something as simple as seeing the image to know that it's possible can change 
everything. And so when I see what Crazy Rich Asians has been able to do, I know that there's so many more walls to break in our brains that we don't even know about yet. Hi there. Do you have a bad Asian confession you'd like to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. Like this one. Coming to us from a listener who grew up in Alaska. Hi, I wanted to leave my bad Asian confession. So I am half Thai, half white. And I grew up in a very homogenous small town in Alaska. And I find that I am constantly navigating between like, am I Asian enough or am I white enough? And I confess that there was one time when I was in a high school Spanish class and we had a survey and they had the race box where they were like, you know, check the box for your race, but it wasn't check all that apply, it was check one or the other. And I didn't know how to answer that question. I was like, I don't like to have to choose which side I, I consider myself as, and I asked my teacher and she said, oh, well, you look white, you should just put white. And I confess that I followed her instructions and that moment is still on my mind today. So I hate having to choose between the two identities and as a half a person, I feel like that's something I have to do quite often. So that is my bad Asian confession. Okay, that's it for episode 12 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Frank Xiong, and by Jen Yamato. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. And our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. And this podcast is, as always, dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. Come back next week for another great conversation. If you like Asian Enough, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one in our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. And remember, if you challenge Miley Cyrus to a dance battle, you better come prepared. This was West Side Story Digital. Like, this was the real shit. 